also right that you only find what you look for, right? So it is true that the standard definitions of algorithmic fairness that are in play these days require one to say, well, who are you worried about protecting, so to speak, and what constitutes harm? You could, to pick my favorite uh, uh, oppressed minorities, pick short bald people uh, and say, what's the impact on short bald people? Uh, there's plenty of evidence that short people uh, get uh, uh, discriminated against uh, economically. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you've ever uh, been in a singles bar, bald people are certainly the object of discrimination. So there's, there's, a, there's a history there. Nobody would treat that as uh, something for which bias uh, elimination uh, in an algorithm has to be the highest priority, or at least that's not politically uh, uh, salient today. There is this effort to try to enunciate definitions of fairness that, that don't make reference to groups, that aren't just making promises to groups, but are making promises to people. But this is really, I'd say, at the research frontier. And one of the things we try to get across in the book is that the study of fairness in machine learning is really just beginning. This is, this is an active research topic, and, and by no means is it solved. Episode 291 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views expressed here uh, do not reflect uh, the views of our institutions, our clients, our firms, our families, our dogs uh, in a Jonathan Turley uh, tribute. Uh, but uh, and as, as I have occasionally said, maybe not even my views three weeks from now. We're not going to do our news roundup today. Uh, we have an interview with Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth, both professors in computer and information science at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, they're co-authors of a, a, a a book that I really enjoyed uh, called The Ethical Algorithm. Uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, the ways in which big data um, is and, and algorithms that exploit big data are changing our lives and uh, what uh, – uh, ordinary people need to know about the way in which algorithms can affect us uh, um, so that we can begin to think uh, rationally about policy uh, uh, in connection with uh, big data. Uh, uh, Michael Aaron, let me let me stop there. Uh, well, let me introduce myself. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA, formerly with DHS, host and chief provocateur for the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, uh, Michael Aaron, do you agree with me? This is basically about big data and machine learning. You called it the ethical algorithm, uh, uh, and it is about algorithms, but I think algorithms are only really interesting if you're dealing with large numbers. Yeah. I mean, most of our book refers to algorithmic decision-making that is the product of AI and machine learning. So um, rather than some software developer having written from scratch by hand, so to speak, every line of the code that is making decisions about lending, for instance, or criminal sentences. Instead, you take historical data you have um, and use it to train a model, right? So um, really, in, in some ways, our, our book could also be called the ethical model instead of the ethical algorithm. But in general, we are talking about um, situations in which large data sets are being used with machine learning to produce predictive models. And you're 
subtitle is uh, The Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design, which is, I take it, your um, attempt in this book to say, look, there are social consequences to the algorithmic choices we make and to the uh, ways in which algorithms shape our decision making. And we might as well uh, get used to the idea and start thinking rationally about those choices. That's right. So one of the side effects that's becoming increasingly obvious when you apply machine learning, which is basically, you know, you take a lot of data, you specify some objective function, some proxy for error or profit, and you optimize it, is that although you'll get an algorithm out at the end that is really good as measured according to whatever narrow objective function you specified, it'll often exhibit other behaviors that that maybe you didn't want and maybe you didn't anticipate. And that wasn't such a big deal when we were just using machine learning to design spam filters. But now that we're using it to make really consequential decision, decisions about people's lives, things like hiring and, and criminal sentencing, we start caring about these side effects. And, and the book is about how you can directly embed constraints into the algorithm that make sure that they don't do the various bad things that we've seen in the news over the last few years. Or at least, uh, to, to reveal my bias, uh, uh, things that uh, uh, academic professors would describe as bad. Uh, um, it's not entirely clear that these are all, that, that what you're building in is uh, a set of, of value uh, systems that everyone would agree with, but certainly everybody at the uh, faculty club at uh, the University of Pennsylvania would agree with it. Well, I might point out that most of the misbehaviors that have been discovered um, in machine learning and AI were not discovered by academics, but were uncovered by the media and watchdog groups and the like. Uh, and so while I I, I agree with you that it's impossible to get everybody to agree on everything. Uh, I think many people would, for instance, view a, let's say, consumer lending model that had a false rejection rate on black people that was 10 times the false rejection rate on white people as something that's problematic. Well, it would require an explanation for sure. And and let me let me let's let's start with explainability because uh, a lot of the concern in the area of big data and AI has arrived from the position of not understanding why these decisions are being made, right? You, you, uh, you give a, uh, your machine a whole bunch of data uh, about uh, past outcomes. You say, please uh, uh, optimize to produce similar results in future encounters with similar data. Uh, and you get a machine that uh, that, that does things uh, in response to data, and then you begin to wonder why is it doing exactly that? Uh, and uh, the, the, there has been a lot of question about how do you get explainability from these large, complex data sets and machine learning algorithms? Um, and and my first reaction to that was kind of how hard can that be? You. Uh, if you think a particular decision requires an explanation, why don't you just run the model with a slightly different input uh, and see how it affects the outcome? And uh, at some point, you're going to have a, a pretty good explanation of why the model did what it was uh, doing. Or, or am I just wrong about that? I think you're wrong about that. Uh, so okay. I think what you're <laughs> describing is technically true of simpler, older methods such as linear regression. Well, I am simpler and older, so. <laughs> um, 
So in something like linear regression, which, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners might have had some encounter with and maybe in a statistics course. This this is why they all went into law. <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, there's a very direct relationship between the input variables and the output behavior. And just by sort of varying a single input, you can see, you know, whether it changes the output positively, negatively, by a large amount, by a small amount. But uh, many methods that are in wide use today, such as, you know, deep learning and neural networks, you know, you have a model, it's extremely complicated. It has um, discovered many, many high dimensional interactions. And it could be that you literally go to every one of the inputs and vary it and don't see much influence on the output. But there are combinations of those variables, which are difficult to articulate or understand. And it's those combinations of the inputs that are influencing the output. So I, I still think, I mean, I, I understand that. I, I, I realize that uh, it could be that it, it, you actually have to have a combination of two or three factors before uh, a particular emergent uh, behavior uh, shows up. But why can't you write algorithms that demand explanation by systematically varying multiple variables uh, in a way that is most likely to produce an explanation? So in some sense, you're right. I mean, one of the issues with the study of explainability is it's not clear what different people mean by explainability. But one reasonable thing they could mean is, you know, if you've been denied for a loan, for example, maybe what you want are essentially instructions. What is the smallest change I could have made to my application that would have caused me to be approved? Yeah. And in principle, that's the kind of question you can answer. But Or how much difference does it make if you change my race from white to black? In principle, those are the kinds of questions you can answer. But one of the problems that comes up when you, when you go down that road, and, and this happens when you're talking about these deep neural networks, but not so much when you're talking about linear regression, is that these models tend to be extremely brittle. So, so I don't know if you've heard about adversarial examples, but yes. So, so and explain it. Sure. I, I'll give you my my quick assessment. It is when you set two AIs uh, to compete with each other. One designs a system that it thinks uh, uh, will uh, achieve a particular result, and the other tries to find a way in which it can uh, either defeat that or improve on it, depending on which, the comp which competition you're, you're engaged in. Is that fair? So I'm thinking about something a little bit different. Okay. So, so think about these image classifiers that have been making right. a lot of news recently, maybe something that would be in a self-driving car. Okay, so it's, you know, some algorithm, it's going to look at a picture and it's going to tell you, is there a stop sign or a you know, 60 mile per hour speed limit sign? And uh, you take a picture, you know, these models are pretty good. So you take a picture of a stop sign, you show it to the algorithm, it says stop sign. And so now take your idea, say, okay, like, what would I have to change to this image? What would I have to change about this image to make it say that it was a 60 mile per hour sign? And that's, that's a question you can answer. And you can start changing the image in the way that most directly causes the self-driving car, say, to see a, a 60 mile per hour sign. And, and so what's going to happen when you do this? Maybe what you expect to happen is you get some cool animation where the stop sign sort of cleanly morphs into a 60 mile per hour sign. But it turns out that's not what happens. What happens is the image gets a little bit more staticky, but it's almost imperceptible to you. And yet all of a sudden, the self-driving car is like 99% certain that 
um, what it's seeing is a is a sign that says 60 miles per hour. People have, have done this by putting little pieces of reflective tape on stop signs. Exactly, exactly. So, so um, there's it turns out it's pretty easy to do this in all sorts of ways, including, you know, physical ways, like putting a sticker on the stop sign. Right. And so these are called adversarial examples because, you know, you as a human being wouldn't know that anything has changed about the image, but the, the algorithm is classifying the image completely wrong. So when you say brittle, you mean uh, they they function well in the everyday world that they've been exposed to, but little changes that that we would think are insignificant could make a big difference in their performance. That's right. And so, you know, in the context of a lending model, for example, you can imagine asking the same question, like, what is the smallest change I can make to my application that would, uh, you know, cause me to be classified as as creditworthy? And that would be a good explanation if it would like give me instructions about how to become creditworthy, right? Like, in, it, it sort of similarly to if if we were going to see the stop sign smoothly morph into a sixty mile per hour sign, but that's likely not what's going to happen. You're going to get an adversarial example. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so just to make this concrete, you know, suppose you were denied a loan and asked for an explanation of the form. What can I change? That what's the sort of minimal change? that would cause me to get the loan. And I told you, well, the explanation is like, well, if you live seven blocks over from where you live and your eye color was slightly different than what it was, and you were two months older than what you are now, and a bunch of other things that seem completely irrelevant to your creditworthiness, and I told you that was the explanation. So the type of experiment that you're suggesting, while sort of plausible intuitively, if you actually go apply it to something like deep neural networks, you're likely to get more of an explanation of the type that I just gave. And nobody would think of that as a satisfying explanation for why they were denied a loan. Ah, but it does explain why the algorithm reached the result it did. Somebody who lives a few blocks over and has a different eye color uh, has a really good credit score, essentially. Well, there's lots of things that in principle, like, you know, explain why it reached the why it reached the decision it did, right? Like the, the model itself is some concrete thing. It might be specified by, you know, a million numbers. So I could just tell you those million numbers. I can say, look, this is the model. I trained it on this data set that, you know, is a complete explanation for what it did. But it's not an explanation uh, of the form that you could get from a from a person, right? It's not a it's not a quite right a legible explanation. Okay. I mean, here another type of explanation is you didn't get the loan because we took this historical data and we trained a deep convolutional neural network using stochastic gradient descent to a local minimum, and the model that it found rejected you for a loan. Yeah, screw you. Okay, so that, <laughs> that is an explanation of why you didn't get a right. loan, but I don't think anybody would find that very reassuring. Uh, I, 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 I am constantly thinking in this uh, AI explainability uh, um, a debate about uh, – uh, someone who who said, you know, the uh, prefrontal cortex is not so much the decision maker for us as the decision maker's press agent. Uh, uh, after the decision is made, the prefrontal cortex makes up a narrative that makes as much sense as possible of the action it took. Uh, we need a we need a prefrontal cortex. Uh, maybe the narrative will be true, maybe it won't be, but it'll at least be believable. Yeah, I think I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair. And, and that is a, something that we try to bring up in the book, which is that lots of these issues that people 
worry about in the context of machine learning. You, you know, they've become salient when we're using algorithms because we have to think quantitatively about things. But but many of these issues, fairness, privacy, even explainability, aren't really specific to algorithms. They might be, you know, big issues with human decision makers as well. And you're right, yeah, you know, human beings are really good at coming up with explanations, but as you say, they might be closer to sort of post hoc justifications than they are true explanations of how the decision was made. So let me let me let me pivot from that to uh, uh, the more controversial parts of this, which is the bias, because it strikes me that what we're seeing is, especially when you're talking about media reports saying, "Well, they found a bias in this uh, um, algorithm," is that somebody making up a narrative based on very limited data. Um, a, and their preferred narrative is uh, America is full of racists and uh, they design racist er- algorithms. And so what do you expect? Uh, blacks get less credit or longer sentences or what have you uh, than uh, whites or other uh, ethnic groups. But usually that's just – a, a particular artifact that people have seized on and said, well, that can't be right. You know, we would never allow a human decision maker to come to us with that result without a damn good explanation. Well, right. So, so again, we have a situation where algorithmic decision making has highlighted you know, issues that have really been present since before there were computers, right? I mean, so if one is worried about you know, racism, for instance, in lending decisions, there were racist loan officers before there were computers. And and now there's concern about algorithms that, you know, perpetuate different kinds of bias. And you're also right that you only find what you look for, right? So it is true that the standard definitions of algorithmic fairness that are in play these days require one to say, well, who are you worried about protecting, so to speak, and what constitutes harm to that group? So to make this concrete, we can use, again, this example of you know, consumer lending and what you might think of as constituting harm um, are, are false negatives, people who would repay a loan if you gave it to them, but that you rejected for the loan. So you know, if you use algorithms to make such decisions, if you use machine learning to make such decisions, you will make such mistakes. You know, you're not going to be perfect. You're going to have, um, you're going to make false negatives. And you might say, well, fairness means not that you don't make that kind of mistake, but that those mistakes not be distributed in a disproportionate way across groups. So, you know, to go back to the example I gave at the beginning of the discussion, we'd like to avoid situations, for instance, where the false rejection rate on one racial group is 10 times on another racial group or or there's a gender difference. But it is true, you are right, that somebody has to make the decision that it's race that you want to protect or gender that you want to protect. And there is a sense in which there is an infinite regress here and you could be you know, looking at more and more and ever more refined subgroups. Right. And, and I, I, I think when I uh, was sending you a note about that, I said you could, uh, to pick my favorite uh, uh, oppressed minorities, pick uh, short, bald people uh, and say, what's the impact on short, bald people? Uh, there's plenty of evidence that short people uh, get uh, uh, discriminated against uh, economically. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you've ever uh, been in a singles bar, bald people are certainly the object of discrimination. So there's, there's, a, there's a history there. Nobody would treat that as uh, something 
for which bias uh, elimination uh, in an algorithm has to be the highest priority, or at least that's not politically uh, uh, salient today. But what I'm interested in is once you've made that decision, well, we we have a bias problem and it's racial or it's gender – and you build in a set of constraints and that your book talks a lot about the constraints you have to build in and how much accuracy you you give up in order to achieve various kinds of fairness and and, and there's some really interesting discussions of what constitutes fairness uh, but the initial decision to pick these groups and say we're going to eliminate bias there kind of guarantees something that feels a lot like quotas when you're done with it, doesn't it? Let me say two things, because I think there's a, there's a lot in your question there. So first, I think, in large part, we agree with you, at least as, as researchers. So one of the problems with these standard statistical notions of fairness is exactly what you say, that, that there's sort of this obligation at the beginning to pick these groups that you think the algorithm is at risk of harming in order to specify who you want to protect. And, and you might have been wrong. And just to give sort of a, a different example to yours, it might be that you said you, you picked some standard choices. You know, you, you, you don't want any discrimination along the axis of race. You don't want any discrimination along the axis of gender. Well, even that doesn't guarantee that, for example, you don't have much higher false negative rates on Hispanic women, right? It doesn't guarantee right. if you've picked, you know, race as a monolith and gender as a monolith that you don't have discrimination packed into intersections of those attributes, and separately, there's the question of, well, did we want to protect short people, bald people? There is this effort to try to enunciate definitions of fairness that, that don't make reference to groups, that aren't just making promises to groups, but are making promises to people. But this is really, I'd say, at the research frontier. And one of the things we try to get across in the book is that the study of fairness in machine learning uh, is really just beginning. This is, this is an active research topic, and, and by no means is it solved. Yeah, I, I so I I want to talk a little bit about p hacking because uh, I think that's fascinating uh, the the mechanism by which people say, um, well, it, in order to have a result that's publishable, it has to be statistically significant, which means that if it couldn't happen by chance with within a uh, sort of five percent uh, uh, one time out of twenty, uh, if if it, if it would happen only one time out of 20 by chance. We're going to assume that it didn't happen by chance. But of course, as XKCD recently, uh, I guess you, you put their uh, uh, cartoon in your book, uh, uh, showed if you run 20 studies uh, using different variables, one of them by chance is going to turn out to be statistically significant and you can throw away the other 19 and publish the, the 20th. Uh, isn't there an element of b-hacking here? Uh, you you pick your bias and go looking for it and you keep torturing the data until you find something on which the algorithm is not producing um, results that you think are fair. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. One could do that, right? So uh, if I, you know, if you, if you give me some particular predictive model and I go looking for enough different notions of bias or discrimination in it, I might find one just by chance spuriously. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the, the lessons of P hacking certainly apply equally well to what you're calling bias hacking or B hacking. You know, the, the point of the P hacking 
chapter in our book is to talk about, you know, the known methodologies for addressing this problem. The, the, the real problem isn't that we don't know how to address it. It's that we may not know the extent or scale to which it's occurring. So in particular, because it's happening, it's happening behind behind the scenes before people publish. And, and it's happening in a distributed way. Right. So, you know, if yes. I'm a scientist, right, if I'm a scientist, <laughs> and, it could be 20, 20 people do do studies. Yeah, exactly. And one of them gets a, gets a, a random uh, correlation and they say, well, it's uh, it, it meets the 5% criteria. So I'm going to publish. The other 19 don't and they don't publish. That's right. So if, you know, in my lab, alone, I run 20 experiments, uh, and one of them happens to be statistically significant at the 5% level, um, I, I you know, if, if I'm practicing good statistical hygiene, I should, I should be suspicious. I shouldn't go try to publish that result and not mention the other 19 experiments I did that didn't result in statistical significance. But if 20 different groups each run one experiment, you know, it's the same problem, yeah. but the one group that found the statistically significant result now honestly believes that they're practicing good statistical methodology um, when, in fact, when you look at the group of 20 of them together, they're not. Yes, or or just because nature is not going to publish uh, studies that tell us, yep, exactly what you thought uh, happened. There's no connection. Right. Uh, but if there is a, a connection, they're going to publish it. Uh, so everybody who wants to get into nature is uh, already sort of um, p-biased. Exactly. So yes. you know, these twenty different uh, groups conduct their studies, and you only read about one of them, the most surprising one in nature. So um, my guess is this is a big problem in social science and probably in nutrition science. Uh, 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 we've gotten so much bad advice on nutrition in the last 50 years uh, um, uh, that I can't help but No, think it's actually that half is... of it's good and half of it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yes. <laughs> Or maybe maybe uh, maybe five percent is good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, let me ask. I want to I want to talk a little bit about the impact on privacy because it's uh, this is also really interesting. The first thing that I thought was interesting is that when you have enough data, uh, things that seem pretty inconsequential to disclose actually reveal a lot of information. And 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 you make the point that. Uh, Knowing somebody is male and lives in a, a particular zip code does not tell you um, anything about anybody, uh, any individual. But if you just add to that the question of whether they think True Lies was one of the great uh, uh, movies in uh, cinema history, uh, suddenly you know exactly who that is. Uh, and you can connect all of their other choices on Netflix, uh, even though those have been anonymized, to a, pers a particular person. Um, is that a, a, a fair assessment of the way in which big data allows uh, privacy breaches? Yeah, that's right. So for a long time, people thought about protecting privacy through the lens of anonymization. They said, OK, we've got this big data set. We're going to release it and, and we got to make sure to scrub out names and social security numbers and anything that is a you know, unique identifier to you. But of course, the fact that you like true lies is not a unique identifier. Right? There's all sorts of things that on their own are not unique identifiers, but in combination they are, right? A small number of idiosyncratic facts about you is very likely to uniquely identify you in a large population. And the problem with attempting to anonymize data that, that we've seen over the last decade, you know, through a series of pretty well-publicized 
data breaches and attacks is that there's a lot of stuff out there to cross-reference with. So if I have some data set that includes six of your favorite movies and and your age and when you watched them, um, I, and it doesn't have your name, you're right that it's likely I can cross-reference that with some other data set, maybe the IMDb movie review data set, and figure out exactly who you are. So that is what led to the need for more rigorous science around data privacy. And this uh, – it surprised me. There really have been some breakthroughs in uh, making uh, – being able to make data public um, with pretty fine-tuned bits of information and still protect the privacy of individuals. And my my favorite example is the one where you you talk about – uh, suppose you wanted to do a, a, a study of uh, uh, men in Philadelphia who had cheated on their wives and you wanted to know what percentage had cheated on their wives and you asked them, it, obviously, if they give you the answer and you uh, publish that, wouldn't take much to tip over into being uh, uh, identifiable to them. Uh, and it's a very sensitive information. Uh, information. So you, the technique is, if I understand it right, to say, okay, here's what we want you to do. If you've cheated on your wife or not, first, flip a coin, tell us the truth uh, if it's heads. If it's tails, flip it again and just report yes if it's heads and no if it's tails. Is that uh, uh, And what you end up with is something that is true three-quarters of the time more or less. Uh, and you can apply that three-quarters test retroactively to say, well, we know what if, if the actual number of people who had treated on their wives was one-third, uh, that would, using this chance uh, methodology, produce a, uh, a three-quarters uh, um, uh, number had cheated on their wives, and we can extract the true number by making adjustments knowing how the data was distorted by chance. Uh, um, I've, I've probably screwed that up, but I've, <laughs> I'm getting close at least. That's right. So the the basic insight is that many questions we want to ask about data are statistical in nature, right? So in in that example, I want to know how many people in Philadelphia have cheated on their wives. That's some statistical question. I don't actually care about the answer from any particular person. Right. And so the result is I can ask the question to each person in a way that gives them a very strong form of plausible deniability. And it's basically that they're going to give me only a very noisy answer, only some small fraction of the time will they be. The coin made me say that, dear. Telling the truth, exactly. But because I, as the statistician, say know exactly how the noise was added, even though I can't form any strong beliefs about whether any particular person has cheated on their wives, in aggregate, I can sort of subtract off the noise because I know how it was added and get a good estimate for this population level statistic. And so that's the idea behind this technology that's called differential privacy that's starting to be put into white. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I, I assume it's harder if the answer is not binary, right? Uh, if it's a question of what's your income, uh, you can you have to decide how much uh, uh, to fuzz that. And uh, you can't just say, uh, uh, put down zero if, if it's heads. Uh, but this produces – well – does this allow you to release a very 
detailed uh, uh, history about uh, people, say medical histories, and then just obfuscate a few of the uh, elements, or do you have to obfuscate all of them? At a high level, and you know, not to make it sound too easy because there are lots of challenges here, you can perform any data analysis task you want that is in the end statistical. That is, you can find out things about the data set that aren't facts about particular people. Those are the things that this technology is explicitly trying to hide. But if it's statistical, for example, if you want to learn a classifier to be able to pick out tumors, you know, from it, from MRI images, or if you want to figure out the distribution of wealth in the United States. That's not a hypothetical example, by the way, because the 2020 census is going to use the protections of differential privacy. Any question about the data that's statistical in nature can be answered with this technology. Now, that's not to say that there are no costs. There are costs. Typically, the more privacy you want, and, and this is something that can be quantified now, the more privacy you want, either the more data you will need to answer the same question or the more error you will need to tolerate. But the, so let's suppose that what I want to know is I've got a big medical database and I want to know whether eating red meat causes cardiovascular problems, right? So I've got cardiovascular events, I've got people's diet, but Everybody has reported what they eat and whether they had a heart attack, uh, uh, and they may not want either of those things uh, uh, identified to their uh, uh, their selfish vegan daughter. Um, and so, can can you introduce enough obfuscation so you can still say yes? We know that there's a connection here between eating uh, red meat and uh, cardiovascular events, and we know it's about this big uh, without disclosing any individuals. Uh, um, history? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, this is an easy case, right? So, you know, to make this concrete, you have this medical database and you have kind of two columns you care about. Have people had a heart attack and, you know, what's their diet, for instance, right? And you want to know the correlation between these two variables. And so the correlation is a number from minus one to one, Um, minus one being these things are perfectly negatively correlated, plus one meaning they're perfectly correlated, zero meaning that they're not correlated at all. And and so the way you would achieve differential privacy in this case is very straightforward. You just you would go compute that correlation on the data to numerical precision, but then you would add noise to it. You wouldn't publish that number to numerical precision. Let's say the true correlation was 0.29. You'd add a small random positive or negative number and the magnitude of that positive neg- or negative number would be on the order of one over the square root of the number of people in your data set. Okay. And this will give differential privacy. This will provably have the property that from the noisy estimate that you produce, no third party observer can possibly reverse engineer the heart condition or the diet of any particular individual in the data set. How big does the data set have to be before you? Well, so, 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 so what's nice here is that I I basically said that the noise you need to add is on the magnitude of one over the square root Ah, of the number of rows in the database. So now you can see that the more rows I have in the database, the more accurate the noisy estimate I will release is. And if I, on the other hand, if I only have, you know, 10 people in the database, then, you know, one over square root of 10 is a pretty big number to add to something that's between minus one and plus one, and then I'll have a much noisier estimate. So it gives you this continuum that basically says, as a function of 
how much privacy you want and how much data you have, how much accuracy you can get for a given level of privacy. So to bring this back to recent headlines and technology policy, um, there are two ways to do this. Either the, a person you trust, like the Census Bureau, assuming you trust the Census Bureau, can inject the uncertainty, and that gives a lot of, uh, of accuracy to the data because they only have to inject a little and they can do it across the entire uh, database. Uh, uh, or you can let each individual, like we did with the, uh, uh, the cheating husbands, uh, uh, introduce the uncertainty for themselves so that they have an ironclad uh, protection, even if they don't trust the person who's collecting the data. And both Apple and Google, who are now gathering very large data sets uh, uh, from people, have started to use differential privacy in which the user injects the uncertainty so that nobody has to trust Google or Apple, which you know is fair because uh, a lot of people don't. That's right. So what you're getting at is there are these two different guarantees, one of which is much stronger than the other, right? Like if you have this trusted intermediary like the census, then you're not worried about protecting privacy from them. You're going to allow them to gather the data. You only want that outside observers shouldn't be able to learn much about you. On the other hand, it's this much stronger thing to ask if if you're not willing even to let anyone collect your data. And your question about how much data you need to perform these analyses depends which of these two models you're in. You know, it turns out you don't need that much data if you're in this model with a trusted intermediary. Like if the census is performing statistics, then the effect of imposing a reasonable amount of differential privacy is sort of comparable to the effect of working with a relatively large subsample of the data, like you know, a, a sample of half the data, which is the kind of thing statisticians are already very comfortable working with. On the other hand, if you want this very strong notion of of privacy even from the you know even from apple even from google then to do useful things you you need data sets that are you know on the order of you know hundreds of millions or or a billion users which is something that is achievable for these very large technology companies but uh, is much more difficult at a smaller scale so let me ask a, a, a question that isn't in the book and I don't know the answer to. Maybe you don't. Uh, a lot of the data that's being collected by uh, uh, social media is used for advertising and the big social media giants, uh, uh, Google and Facebook, are increasingly keeping that data because they're incentivized to keep that data and not to provide it to advertising competitors. And that has anti-competitive impacts. Uh, if you were going to say, no, the data has to be shared because we don't like the, uh, the way in which uh, uh, access to data has allowed monopolization, could you require sharing with differential privacy in a way that would still be useful to the advertising industry? I think broadly the answer to that is yes. Um, you know, I think the hard questions are the regulatory and legal and competitive ones. I mean, of course, um, any large or small technology company that feels like it has gathered a proprietary data set isn't anxious to share that data, even, even if it's technically possible. But at a high level, since um, largely what technology companies use consumer data for 
is in fact to build predictive statistical models, right? So Google. Yeah, wants they want to know, you know, if I if I like to, True Lies, am I going to uh, right. uh, watch uh, Die Hard? Yeah, so they want to make product recommendations. They want to predict what ads you will click on. Facebook wants to suggest people that you might want to friend, and all of these are powered by machine learning, right? They're taking historical data from their own services and the feedback that users have given them in the form of what things they did or didn't click on. And they're using machine learning to build a predictive model and improve their services. And so since, as Aaron said, you know, this is just a, another statistical computation, right? This is just a computation in which you're taking a large data set and you're running a machine learning algorithm on and producing a predictive model. And we know how to, for instance, produce such predictive models in a differentially private way, in a way that even if you publish the details of the resulting model, nobody can reverse engineer the data of any particular consumer that went into the training of that model. So, you know, the, there are details, but I think scientifically the path towards doing this is clear. Um, and so I, I do think the door is open, for instance, to, you know, changes to regulation that would require some form of sharing of this type. Yeah, I, I so my my suggestion is there's a startup in here somewhere. Instead of writing another book, you ought to just start looking for that startup. Uh, um, <laughs> it, it, so we're we're about out of time, but I uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the book that we didn't cover. Uh, let me just ask you, considering what we didn't cover, what's the one other thing you'd like our listeners to know about uh, ethical algorithms? I guess the the one thing that we didn't talk about that you know, is a sub theme of the discussion of P hacking is that midway through the book, you know, with these discussions we've been having today about um, violations of fairness or violations of privacy and algorithmic decision making, it's really fair in those situations to think about consumers or citizens being the victim of algorithms. You know, you didn't get the loan um, because a neural network said you shouldn't get the loan or your medical record was exfiltrated from some predictive model for a disease. And these things, these harms might come to you and you wouldn't even be aware that they happened or that your data was used perhaps to perpetuate them. Much of the second half of the book deals with more nuanced situations in which an algorithm may exhibit behavior that we consider antisocial or at least, you know, socially suboptimal. But it's not easy to just blame the algorithm because the behavior and preferences of the users of the algorithm are are also um, to blame. So the example we give there uh, in, this, in this discussion is navigation apps like Google Maps and Waze, you know, and, and, and so we kind of make the point, what could be better than these apps, right? In response to real-time GPS traffic data of every other driver on the road, these things compute your optimal driving route in terms of the time it's going to take you to get from your personal point A to your personal point B. And and these apps are great and we use them ourselves. But but every every once in a while they send everybody to the same two-lane road. That's right. And and more more generally, you know, from an economic standpoint, these apps are are nudging the population towards a competitive equilibrium, right? Everybody, everybody, so to speak, is optimally responding to the driving behavior of everyone else. And you might wonder like, well, how could that be a bad thing? But if you've ever taken Game Theory 101 and been exposed to prisoner's dilemma, you'll know that just because something is an equilibrium doesn't mean that we're better off for it. 
And so one of the things we discuss at length in the book are these kinds of situations where there is an algorithm, but that algorithm is mediating the preferences of a large population. And essentially, by optimizing on each of their behalfs, it's kind of nudging them towards this competitive equilibrium. And we, we, you know, take some liberties with this metaphor and consider things like, you know, the proliferation of you know, echo chamber and filter bubbles in social media, you know, the, the metaphor being, you know, again, what could be better than my Facebook newsfeed being optimized to, you know, only show me content that I enjoy and that perhaps I agree with. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, from a selfish perspective, of course, I'd rather you know, see articles that I find interesting than articles I find dull. I'd rather see political views that I agree with rather than those that offend me. But maybe one of the consequences of this, you know, individual optimization is that we've been driven towards an equilibrium as a society, or at least a, you know, a social media society um, that has negative macroscopic consequences, such as, um, you know, a, a less deliberative democratic society, for example. Well, that's interesting. I, you know, there's I, I, I can only distantly view this insight, but it's a way of it, it's a little like uh, microeconomicizing everything. If you turn everything into a market, there are lo- social losses, uh, even as there are economic efficiency gains. Right? If we all bid uh, for uh, uh, matrimonial services on a twenty-four hour a day basis, uh, it would be economically more efficient, but not exactly what we had in mind for society. Um, and what you're saying about algorithms is that's a different way of achieving efficiency. But like uh, turning everything into a market, it has costs that we haven't begun to understand in the way we understand the costs of turning everything into a market. I think that's I, th- I think I buy that metaphor. Yeah. I mean, um, and again, you know, when algorithms are making it easy for all of us to just optimize for ourselves, uh, as you say, there can be collective consequences that are negative and diffuse and hard to understand. And I really think that many of the debates that we have over you know, uh, social media, manipulation on social media, polarization because of social media, these we're just now coming to understand these consequences after an initial period where it just all seemed like you know great fun and games. Um, on these different platforms. Yeah, well, that's the story of uh, the computer industry. It was all it was all fun until it started to matter. <laughs> okay, uh, Michael Kearns, uh, Aaron Roth. Uh, uh, this was a, a, a terrific conversation. A great book. The book is the Ethical Algorithm: The Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design. You do not need to know a lot of math to, or you only need to know enough math to have gotten through law school, which is practically none, uh, <laughs> uh, to read this book. It it was a lot of fun. I really appreciated the fact that you uh, gave the back of your hand to all the singularity discussion, which I'm sick of having. <laughs> uh, and uh, I learned a lot, uh, and I learned a lot from from talking to you today. So uh, uh, thanks very much. Are you guys going to be doing any um, uh, additional papers or speeches that our audience might want to uh, uh, know about? Well, we're always writing 
uh, academic papers about these topics. You know, it's our it's our research area, so that maybe there's some small sliver of your audience that would be interested in those things. And, and we, uh, we are. I, I think you should go for the, the startup. <laughs> you go for the startup, and we're continuing to go around and give general audience talks, uh, uh, sort of the the tail end of our of our book tour. So look All out right. for us. Well, thanks very much. Uh, uh, and for the audience, uh, uh, please send uh, additional suggestions for speakers to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter, and occasionally I will tell you what I think we're going to talk about uh, next week. Uh, that's at Stuart Baker. Rate the show and leave a, a review on iTunes or, uh, iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or wherever you uh, get your podcasts. Uh, we're getting a lot of uh, uh, good reviews, and I'm looking forward to I, more abusive uh, reviews, as long as they come with five stars. I will read them on the uh, uh, the air. And please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.